Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well bow our heads once more and we'll dive into our text today. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful. Um, Just at our church, we're grateful for a myriad of things. Uh, In a weird year, we're grateful for a temporary place to meet. We're grateful for um, provision for the purchase of a building, provision for a healthy church to labor in that, and contractors and and members who are willing to help uh, us get in there with lack of skill, but with zeal and uh, heavy-weighted hammers and to do things Lord, we pray that um, our work for your glory is not concluded when we get into our building, but that that is a foundational piece for generations to come wherein the real work of discipleship is done. Lord, we thank you for this Christmas season, for the Advent reminders that are for us in the gospel. We pray you bless our time today. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, As you've heard several times today, we are beginning our Advent series today, and the word Advent um, simply comes from the Latin word, which means coming. So the Advent is about Christ's coming and what it means for our lives, our hope, and for our world. And today, we're actually going to be talking about what life is like between the two Advents, because there was the first Advent, which was when Christ uh, was born of a virgin, fully God and fully man, that birth we normally celebrate around Christmas time. But there is a second advent. There's a second coming of Christ. And that is going to be when he would come back to save, to judge, and to establish the new heavens and the new earth. Those are kind of the three big things that will come. God will save his church. God will judge the nations, and he will establish a new world in all of its glory. And I'm not sure how familiar or how regular it is for you to consider this second advent, because sometimes we think it's mysterious, it's hard to understand, it's prophetic, but the truth is, the hope that is for us in this second coming is remarkably simple. And that's what God wants to do. He wants to encourage us with the hope of this. He's less concerned about us being prepared for the date and more prepared about our hearts being prepared for whenever that date is. And so the Bible makes it clear that this is not just to be something that we uh, obsess over trying to find numbers or something that we ignore because it might seem too fantastic for us. It's something that we're to use to encourage one another. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, perhaps you've heard the common definition for faith. Now, faith is being sure of what you hope for, certain of things you do not see. And so that's memorized in the NIV. The ESV uh, says here, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So I don't know what your Bible translation says, but it's this assurance, this hope of what you can't see. And that sounds really good, but let's not forget that the author of Hebrews is actually going to continue. He's going to define for us in verse 6 what that assurance is. What is it that we are hoping in that we have faith? Look at chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. That's God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists 
and that he rewards those who seek him. So there's a stunning reality to what faith is in this text. Not only is the faith the hope of what isn't seen, but here we see what it is we are hoping in. And that hope is not just that God exists. Faith is not, biblical faith is not just the mental agreement that a God exists. In James chapter 2, the apostle says the demons believe that. In fact, the demons know that perhaps even better than you do, that God exists. But faith here is believing that God exists. And what else? Did you notice that? That he rewards those who seek him. Faith is not merely the assurance that God exists, but it's the assurance that this God who exists wants to reward those who seek him. There's this stunning tension in here where it says, you can't please God without this. That you believe that God exists and that God would please you. You see that wonderful circle? If we want to please God, if we want to be right with God, we must not only believe that he exists, but believe that God has something for us in the gospel. That it is not this lackluster spiritual formation that the gospel brings. It is a reward that whatever God is about to offer us in the gospel of Jesus Christ is better than anything you can imagine. Our experience of reward in the gospel is foundational to our faith in God. And what we see in scripture is it's this faith in this God who rewards that actually pulls us through difficult times. In fact, the author of Hebrews continues in chapter 11 where he describes this endurance in this reward. Verse 13 says this, these all died. These are these fathers and figures of faith we see before this, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking out of, if they had been thinking of the land which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, if God's promise was in the past, they would have gone back. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. What endures God's saints of old? The promise that what God holds in the future is far better than what you've experienced in the past. That there is the promise of a forever eternal city wherein all of God's saints find their reward. Now, if you're joining us today, you might not be familiar with Advent or any of this futuristic sounding gospel hope. But actually, our world this year is yearning for Advent. Our world is longing for something new to come, for something to change, for something to be restored, for peace to finally return. And the truth is, we should long for something to change. In fact, from a Christian perspective, we are sometimes commanded and encouraged as Christians to lament that this world is not what it should be. Something needs to change. This longing is a good longing. The question is, when you envision whatever that change is, whatever it is that you want to come into your life to bring you peace, can you soberly 
ask yourself the question of, is it powerful enough to bring that change? And even if you say, yes, if this happens, I would have this change, then the secondary question is, is how sure are you that that will ever come? How sure are you that that will ever happen? And today we're going to look at the life between the two advents of Jesus Christ, his first coming in Bethlehem and his second coming in the clouds. We're going to answer those questions from a biblical perspective by looking at a piece of prophecy in the book of Isaiah. It's part of the Old Testament in chapter 2. And in Isaiah chapter 2, this is the Old Testament, so this is before Jesus came, that's the New Testament, God is speaking to his historic people, the Jews, and perhaps a bit like we are right now, their entire world has been turned upside down. Because the Jews have not forgotten that God exists, they know that, they still go to the temple, they still worship, but they have forgotten that God exists to reward those who seek him. And so what they're doing is instead of believing that God has what's best for them, that God is what's best for them, they worship God, but then they try to pursue other false gods to kind of get whatever joy they think might be lacking in the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel. The problem is, is that we don't turn from great joy in God to just lesser joys in the world. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, we turn from God into wrath. We turn from joy into punishment. And so what happens, because God loves his people, he begins to discipline them. He begins to correct their wrong longings of their heart. This happens, first of all, by Israel being divided into two tribes of, uh, uh, that, that one is in the north and one is in the south. And they are conquered by an, other military forces. There's this constant political threat from the outside. But then on the inside, these communities of both Judah and Israel are filled with corruption, a lack of love. Frustration is abounding all over this kingdom of Judah, which is the tribe that uh, is being spoken of in Isaiah chapter two. But in the midst of this pain, this confusion, and this discipline, God is going to remind his people of the hope that is in God himself. The hope for a wounded and confused people is in nothing but God's plan. God won't let sin have the last word, but he's going to complete his plan and restore his people. And in light of this, we're gonna look at three simple things this Advent day. We're gonna see this, that the season of Advent encourages us to look at Christ, to long for heaven, and to live in light of both. So we're going to look, we're going to long, and we're going to live. Those are the three things we're gonna do. And I'm gonna read our text today in full, and then we're gonna circle back and kind of pick on those three things. So if you have your Bibles, it'll be on the screens if you're here at home. Read with me Isaiah chapter two, verses one through five. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So Judah is the people group, Jerusalem is the city. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. 
O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So what you see in this text, and if you have a, a, a real living Bible open before you and you can see what's uh, before and behind is surrounding this is angry language and discipline. And here's this ray of hope that presents not only total restoration of what is seemingly lost, but also something better than they could have ever imagined. And this hopeless nation would hear these words, this prophecy in Isaiah 2, and they would, there would be three things that would stand out to them first. First of all would be the elevation of the mountain of the Lord, or what's called Mount Zion, above all the other mountains. Uh, we used to take our college students in the summers to Michigan, and in northern Michigan we would drive past, does anyone, is there any uh, Midwesterners here who know Boyne Mountain? Boyne Mountain? Okay, so their premier ski lodge in Michigan is called Boyne Mountain. And to them, it is Swiss Alpine skiing, and to us, it is Rainbow Hill up Linda Vista. Like, legitimately. In the summer, you walk up the face of it to Falf. So that's the kind of hill it is. But to them, it is supreme and wonderful. Now, this Mount Zion that they're talking about here was kind of this Jewish national monument. And it was this hill that was in Jerusalem, but it was really just a hill. And this might not seem like anything to us, but in ancient Near East religions, it was thought that the gods lived among the mountains. And the bigger the mountain, the bigger the god, and vice versa. And so you can imagine when they compare all of the other religions with all of their mountains and all of their gods, when they see their dinky little Mount Zion, they might feel a little bit ashamed that perhaps their God isn't as big or as good or as loving as these other gods. But here, there is going to be a day where this mountain will rise at the hand of God to tower over all other mountains. Excuse me, this mountain will be king. God's plan of redemption includes a hope that what you put your faith in is not smaller, but bigger than everything else. And secondly, what we see is not only that the mountain of God will be elevated above the nations, but the same nations which now stood against Judah and Jerusalem would join Judah and Jerusalem in going to the mountain of God to worship, to learn of his ways, to praise this God. They would not be alone in their worship. And then thirdly, this gathering of nations at the mountain of the Lord would result in a profound peace as the direct rule of the law going forth from Zion and the word going forth from Jerusalem. But look again at the unique language that's used in Isaiah 2 and 3. Uh, actually, I'm going to read 3 and 4. Uh, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, shall decide disputes for many people. And they, that's it, as a result of his ruling, shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And so there's this, maybe you caught it, there's this unique transition here. Or he's talking about all these nations going to the house of the Lord. They're going to go up. The word is going to go out. And then it says, he shall rule. The problem is, we don't know who he is in this text. 
There's just this he, which like a a smoke jumper, jumps into Isaiah chapter 2, and the closest thing that he would be is the word that goes out of Jerusalem. The word becomes a person who rules over God's people and delivers peace to all who are under his rule. This is our first point today. This is where we are looking at Christ Because here in Isaiah chapter 2 that we see what later will come in John chapter 1 where in Mary's womb, the eternal word of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. Where the king of kings was born as a baby to rule, which is what he was always made to do as the son of God. And certainly, there's a piece of this prophecy of these nations coming and the mountain of God being seen as glorious that would be fulfilled in part when the Jews rebuilt the temple after their exile. But here in this Advent season, we're reminded of it being partially fulfilled also in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, where Jesus began the process of establishing this mountain of God, drawing the nations to himself and giving peace to his people. You see, for most of the Old Testament, God's promise was seen as exclusively an ethnic promise. That if you wanted to be on God's side of history, if you wanted the reward that came with following God, you had to be of Jewish lineage. And this is why, if you're reading through the Gospels, it's why Jesus' early followers and his 12 disciples in the early pages, and actually even in the later ones, are speaking of following Jesus in super nationalistic terms. Like Jesus rises from the dead and the first thing they say is like, sweet, when do we get national Israel? Because they're thinking in this exclusively ethnic setting and it's true in the Old Testament that God created a people. He created a bloodline where he had covenanted to be their God. And yet what we also see in that same problem to Abraham as Israel's father was the promise not just for those of Jewish blood, but was the promise that through Abraham, the nations would be blessed. God was going to bring others into this covenant, and he was going to bless them through that same covenant. And we see this this multi-ethnic prophecy again being foreshadowed in Isaiah chapter 2, where nations are coming to the Lord. And we see this in full in the work of Jesus' ministry here on earth. You see, in the gospel of Jesus, we see nations coming to the new mountain of God. In John chapter 4, there's this important interaction with Jesus and a specific woman. And in this passage, Jesus finds a woman who, for all purposes, is outside of the purview of God's people. Because of two strikes she has going against her. One, her life is typified by sin, sexual sin specifically. Two, that she is not a Jew. She is a Samaritan. She is a non-Jew. And so she does not have this sort of moral holiness that the law would uphold. And she does not have this pure bloodline that would be demanded to be part of Israel. And Jesus is dialoguing with her and he's kind of talking to her about worship. And she says, well, even if I were to go worship, where do I go? The Samaritans worship God on this mountain over here. And the Jews worship God on the temple mount over here. Where am I to go? What am I to do? Look at how Jesus responds in John chapter 4, verses 21 through 26. 
Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is here now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So Jesus is saying here, something new is happening. There is a new location of worship and it lies in the heart of the worshiper. He, Jesus himself, is the new mountain to which the nations will come to God, not based off, off of ethnicity or off of performance, because neither your skin color nor your service can bring you before God. And if you look at Isaiah 2 and you see this wonderful picture, this window of peace and unity and joy, here's the wonderful hope of the gospel. Anyone can get in on that hope. Anyone can climb this mountain if only you come through Jesus. You see, here's the problem with the gospel. It is so easy that you won't do it. Because when we see this mountain, we see how good it is, we think in our broken bodies, we have to earn that. We have to get that. That seems like a good enough moral benchmark, a good enough measure of success for me to have. But the gospel is that you can't climb this mountain because you are broken and sinful. You see, each of us has a mountain that we envision on the top of it is what we think would satisfy us and we will do whatever it takes for us to, to try and climb it. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus came down the mountain for us because whether you are Jewish or whether you're German, you can't climb this mountain on your own because your sin always separates you from it. And you see, there's, this, there's one mountain um, that is seen a lot in the Old Testament and there's this Mount Zion and then there's also Mount Sinai. And in Exodus, uh, Moses brings God's people out of Egypt and God comes and dwells on this mountain. He physically dwells or he is consuming it in fire. And God says to Moses, he says, Moses, don't let anyone come near. Don't let them touch the foot of the mountain. Because if they touch the foot of the mountain, they will die. Why? Because their sin will kill them. There's this wonderful illustration we could think of where God is a flaming fire and anyone with sin is gasoline. It's no fault that the fire consumes that which is combustible. For an unholy people to go to a holy God we risk the judgment our own sin incurs. Now, here's the wonderful truth of Christmas. God lived, on, Jesus lived on top of the mountain. He came down so that he might go back up. That he might perfectly obey and perfectly do in our place because we never could. And not only would he live perfectly before God, in climbing the mountain of righteousness for us. 
that he would take away the dangerous result our sin deserved. He would take away our death so that anyone who comes to God through Jesus gets access to this mountain because Christ has brought us there. He has brought us back into the pleasure of God, into a pleasing relationship, not because of what you have done, but because of who Christ is. If you've never settled that paradigm in your mind, if you're still climbing, trying to climb this mountain on your own, don't leave here today without talking to someone about what it looks like to see Jesus as the one who brings us to the mountain of God, Jesus who becomes to us the mountain of God. You see, Jesus solves a problem with God that you might not even know you had, that he is holy and you are not. But Jesus also provides a rule that comes from him, which is so good that not only does it bring us peace with God, but it actually gives us the groundwork to have peace with one another, right? Did you see that in verse four where it says that they will take their, their uh, swords and beat them into plowshares and their spears and turn them into pruning hooks? So we're, we're all in Montana, but let's face it, Missoula is fake Montana. And so I just want to be clear here that these are farming implements they're talking about and it's generally seen as a good thing. <laughs> They're taking these weapons meant for war and turning them into tools to cultivate a land and to bless a community. You see, the gospel is the good news that Jesus and Jesus alone does everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. And if we don't get that, we'll never be right with God. But also if we don't get that, that it's Jesus and Jesus alone who can do this, and we think it's our work or our social standing or our efforts, then there is this interpersonal effect it has too. And the interpersonal effect is that when you encounter anyone, you will either see them as a tool to your own salvation or a threat to your own salvation. Whether you think that salvation is in finding righteousness with God or in finding wealth or power or satisfaction in this world. It's universal, the problem that's presented when we are our own salvation. Because it means that we will treat people who are better at us in any specific sphere, whether it's someone who's better than you at work or better at, at, at getting, um, getting the dates and the relationships that our world says you should have. And we look at them, we're either fearful of them because they pose a threat to us, or we hate them because they're a threat to us. We want nothing more than to see them fail, killed, removed from the equation. Because if they're that good, what does that say about me? They become a threat to us. Or if there are people around you who instead of succeeding are struggling, they become just tools because we'll leverage our own position. Like, yeah, I'm bad, but at least I'm better than Joe. <laughs> and everybody wants to have a Joe that we could point to. Joe, as long as you're down there, I feel pretty good about being up here. Or maybe we, you know, want to go help Joe. But when we go and we help Joe, it's because we want the bonus extra points that come from serving him, not because we actually care about Joe. If Joe is down and I go and I compassionately serve Joe, don't I feel better about myself? Aren't I a better person than all those other people who didn't do this? People become tools or threats. But because it's Jesus and Jesus alone who does all of that, Jesus' gospel actually demilitarizes the church. And look at how Paul puts this in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so again, think of these ethnic terms here, these nations coming to the promise of God. 
For he himself, that is Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments, the performance standards that we try to impose expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. This world is not heaven. We're going to talk about that more in just a moment. But there is an astounding reality behind this peace that Jesus comes to proclaim and enables the church to live in. The church, this place, your community groups, your relationships here actually become a place where we get to rest from the hostility we might have towards one another. Where we get to lay down our weapons because Christ has won the war for us. Even in an imperfect world, the church is called to have a peace that surpasses all understanding. We as a church and the way we interact together, the way we labor in a building together actually gets to be this futuristic window into the world that will be. We get to show them that yes, this world is broken and is messed up, but here, here in this, this small window, in this pinhole, you get to come and you get to see what it's like to have a deep sense of peace that doesn't come through ethnicity or geography or wealth, but comes through the source of Christ offered broadly for all who come to him. We get to proclaim the wonder of this to this world. In Isaiah 2, it says that because Jesus, the word, rules so well, he decides disputes and brings peace. And in Colossians 3 that we looked at two weeks ago, Paul says to the church, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, church is great. I love the church. I hope you love the church. You're here in the middle of a pandemic. I'm assuming you have some sort of emotion for the church. But the church is not the kingdom of God. That's yet to come. But here in this text is the real hope for peace in this body that when we actually have conflicts with each other, we get to grab them and wrestle them back into Christ's rule, not our own. Our hope for peace amongst each other is not that either in in, in disagreement I get to rule or you get to rule, but in all of this, Christ gets to rule. Does our church represent that to our world? But because of the power of Jesus and his incarnation, we can do that. We have the ability to do this. In fact, look with me at Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see, why can we get along with each other right now, even though we're broken and imperfect people? Because Christ, in the gospel, in living perfectly, dying substitutionally, and raising again eternally, our sin has been borne away. But the truth is, there is still a second coming. That's what it says. He's going to come a second time to save those who eagerly wait for him. We, as the church, work hard for peace because we want to show the world that there is something better than peace between us. There is something more profound, more lovely, more attractive. And this is our second point today. This is our longing for heaven. Look again at this picture in Isaiah 2, verse 4. He shall judge between the nations. 
He shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nations, neither shall they learn war anymore. And even though Jesus has brought peace inside the church, the church isn't always peaceful, is it? Even though perhaps as a whole we take our swords and we turn them into plowshares, we've got a backup dagger that we'll take out every now and then. We know how to use words. We know how to be hurt. We know what it's like to hurt others. And even inside of our church, if all we do is look out the windows of our world, we see that this world doesn't look like Isaiah 2.4, does it? This world is not teetering on the edge of perfection or global peace. Nothing seems to be perfectly right. And in 2020, more things seem to be perfectly broken. Here's where I want to pause for a second. I want to say how immensely thankful I am for COVID-19 in the Western world. We've been afforded huge blessings in America. We are the richest country in the history of the world. We have international cooperation made possible through the internet, which streamlines even in our own pandemic peace talks and provides quick and unparalleled crisis relief. We have technology in our phones that is hardwired to bring us comfort and to control the dopamine in our brains. We have food designed to satisfy us, not only on a caloric intake level, but at a joy and satisfaction level. We have food made not simply to make us go, but food made to simply make us happy. We have access to cancer-killing miracle drugs, heart transplants, artificial knees, self-parking cars, digital support networks for niche interests and struggles, microchips that hold more than all the world's libraries could ever hold, and access to a hot bath whenever we want it. But brothers and sisters, I have a confession that perhaps you do too. And that confession is not that I doubt belief in the future hope stored up for the Christian. But that confession is that sometimes I live that that's not that big of a deal. That this world is pretty good as it is. Sure, if I got some more sleep, if we could eat what we want and didn't have to work out, if it was football season around the clock, yeah, that'll be great. But as a whole, this is pretty good. But despite the financial and economic stability our world offers, it has been brought to its knees by a virus we cannot even see. If there's one thing that COVID might do in our world, I pray that it would impress on us a reality of our frailty and a longing that there must be something more. The wages of sin in our world cause creation itself to groan. And if we refuse to groan with it, if we refuse to acknowledge the pain 
that COVID-19 might open our eyes to, then what we're actually doing is we are limiting the vast power of Jesus's healing, which awaits us in this new heaven. What we're doing is we're minimizing the power of this resurrection and this new world. Because here in this kingdom is something we cannot fathom. Do not become comfortable with less. Here in this kingdom, people from every tongue and tribe and nation come to worship this king. Here in this kingdom is peace, not isolated based off of policy or wealth, but universal and pervasive. Here in this kingdom, this peace is so profound that not only is there no sword or no spear, but you don't even learn war. Do you understand how incomprehensible that reality is? See, the paradox of our broken body is that we always forget what's good, but we never forget what's wrong. We never forget what's harmful. I don't know the quadratic equation, but I know what to say to my wife to destroy her with my words. You see, even when Jesus brings us peace with God, don't we still have the muscle memory of sin that gives us a constant limp every day? Where when anger rises in our hearts, our fists clench physically or metaphorically because they've learned to fight. Where our eyes desire what they once learned to stare at. Where our tongues lunge with words we once used to destroy. But here in this perfect world, we will not learn war anymore. Do you have any idea how potentially dangerous this is? See, Switzerland is this neutral state, but even in Switzerland, they have a standing army that has to train and be ready. Do you realize that even being redeemed by grace, the amount of standing effort it takes for us to always constantly be on guard against sin, to be on guard against being sinned against by others. The only world wherein we can actually not learn war and not be slaughtered is in a world where there is no potential for war, for sin, or for sickness. This is the hope, lock solid hope we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, where for the first time, the things that we can't express, but that make us curl our shoulders and tense up with anxiety, whether from those who are outside who threaten or the sin that is inside, it is fully removed. Because Christ has not only saved us from the consequences of sin, but from all of the effects of it. Later on in Isaiah 65, the prophet is trying to show Israel the wonderful truth there is here. And just listen. This is a longer passage, but it's describing this new heavens and this new earth. Listen and long with me, will you, for one second. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind but be glad and rejoice forevermore in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem, which if you read Isaiah 1, right before Isaiah 2, is the unfaithful city. Jerusalem will be a joy and her people to be a gladness. 
I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad to my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred year old shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and and inhabit them and shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. In other words, no one's kicking you out of your house. There's no war. They shall not plant and not eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear how good is this God. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Words, prophetic, inspired or not, cannot communicate the effects that God's chosen will have in the joy of this final and forever moment on the mountain. Finally bought brought into the presence of God, not only spiritually, but physically by King Jesus who came to die for us. There's a song we'll sing to actually close today called Joy to the World. It's often sang as a Christmas song, but it's not singing about the first advent. It's singing about the second. Singing about this day when all the nations and heaven and earth proclaim the glories of his righteousness and what he has done to create a world that we can't even dream of. Brothers and sisters, this joy is not here yet. But it is coming. In 2020, it's often hard to look and say, okay, but when? Paul wrote 2,000 years ago and says, this day is coming soon. Where is it coming? I wanna give you real life hope that we can have certainty that this is not a fairy tale, this is not folklore, and it doesn't come by reading our newspapers and holding it up to Revelation, finding a date. It actually comes in something more practical, more profound, and more life-giving. Isaiah chapter nine, we read of the birth of Jesus, born of a virgin. Look at how it describes this king. Chapter nine, verse six. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now listen here. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So here we have, we see so clearly, here's the birth of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. We get that part, but you see what it says here. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Do we have eyes to see? that or are we too quick to write it off to say well certainly 
He's just being hyperbolic. He's just using a figure of speech. Because if we're supposed to be experiencing the increase of Christ's government and of peace, it certainly doesn't look like it. But this is where we need to see what comes in the biblical lens and not according to our world. Because what does this increase look like? Look at Jesus' final words to his disciples in Luke chapter 24, verses 45 through 48. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. Do you hear Isaiah 2, verse 4? You are witnesses of these things. Where does Jesus' government increase every day? Where is peace baking, breaking through even in the pains of COVID-19 and social and economic unrest? Through the progress and proclamation of the gospel, which began 2,000 years ago with a small group of followers and has spread to the multitudes and to the nations. Do you understand the hope in seeing this? I live in this world with you too. I feel 2020. Do you realize that if God has saved souls across language barriers and political states, across centuries and massacres, if the rule of Jesus even today is increasing in special grace among salvation, even when saints are being led to the slaughter that we have proof that this peace is ours. If we can see it in the cross and if we see it in the conversion of the lost, can't we take hope that it will one day be ours in full? That blind faith is not biblical faith. For Christ has shown us all we need in the gospel to endure to the end. So what do we do in light of this? We live in the light. Look at how Isaiah closes this. In Isaiah chapter two, verse five. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. When we see this paradigm, isn't there really only one thing we do? Our world is filled with mountains galore all of them calling and beckoning for us to climb and ascend with the best we have to offer. But here is the mountain that rises above them all and at the top is the Christ who one day came down and said, come through me. Come walk this path. Come worship this God. You see, all around Isaiah chapter two is the language of judgment for those who find themselves on another mountain. But the only question we have to offer is why would we choose another what can anyone offer that Jesus hasn't already provided and provided abundantly? To access this new mountain, it comes by humbling ourselves and repenting of trying to make our own kingdom. And here there's two things we can do. 
is first we can pursue holiness and obedience knowing we leave nothing on the table. We sacrifice nothing for our joy in following Jesus. Now, walking in obedience to Jesus is giving up the joy of this world, but it's not giving up joy in this world. The world and its desires, First John said, are passing away and God has something better for you in obedience. If we know God's rule and blessing is increasing every day, then shouldn't we want to align our lives with that joy by choosing not to grow towards sin, but to grow towards Christ? And secondly, the second coming, this hope gives us ballast in our highs and in our lows. I know if you, I'm not a sailboater, but I've seen and read about sailboats. On the bottom of the boat, the very middle, they have this long piece of material that's the ballast. What the ballast does is when the wind blows one way, it's a counterbalance to keep it from capsizing. And when the wind stops, it allows it to right itself. Between these two advents, we are going to have seasons of lows, seasons of heartache, seasons of pain, seasons of chaos, seasons of confusion, seasons of global pandemics and building funds and renovations and loss of loved ones. But here in every pain this world inflicts on us, we are reminded of all that Christ can cure for us. If only we would follow him. Hope not seen in the immediate, but hope seen in somewhere even better, the eternal but life between these advents also has wonderful highs. Family, food, the church, relationships, the outdoors, God's creation. And yet this ballast of our soul reminds us that every good thing that is there is a glimpse of the greater things that are there. Every good thing reminds us that this will come to pass, but there is one thing that will not, one thing that is eternal, and that is God's church drinking from the well of his satisfaction for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And the hope of the second advent is a constant reminder that everything that hurts in this world is real, and it reminds us of the reality of redemption which Christ has promised to bring. And everything good in this world reminds us that for us, the best is yet to come. So let us live in light of this as God's church.